Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 19th, 2013, and it is a Tuesday, and I have a great one for you today. Uh, we have Marjorie Wildcraft will be with us in just a bit. Marjorie, of course, is the force behind BackyardFoodProduction.com and the DVD series Growing Your Groceries. And uh, she's on again. She's been on the show a few times before. But today we've got a subject that is going to really be eye-opening and interesting. Marjorie was recently part of a delegation of organic gardeners that went to Cuba to see what Cuba's like after their forced entry into all organic gardening during the collapse of the Soviet Union, where, well, basically, if you were a Cuban after the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, every bit of support that you were getting from the Soviet Union went away, and you faced embargoes and things like that, and you were completely on your own. And basically, Cuba went through what could only be called economic collapse along with the peak oil, because uh, they had very little fuel imports, uh, they had very little money, and they had no way to meet, make their, uh, their existing systems continue to function. And they had two choices, convert or starve. So they converted. Some people still starved. Um, you're going to hear today about a, a, a video you can watch. I'm going to actually put it in the show notes. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's called The Power of Community, How Cuba Survived Peak Oil. And it's got a little bit of peak oil alarmism in it. I'm a person who believes peak oil is possible, but it ain't coming as quick as most of the people in the peak oil world think that it is. Um, but it, it does give an accurate picture of what happened in Cuba to a degree. What you'll hear from Marjorie is it's a bit overly optimistic, and it painted a little bit better of a picture than the reality. So for the real story, we're going to have Marjorie on. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I really enjoy having Backwoods Home Magazine um, as a sponsor on this show because I've been reading them since I left the Army in 1993. That's a long time. And to have read the work of people like Jackie Clay, John Silvera, Dave Duffy, and other great writers, Masada Yub, um, it's just it's just awesome that, that today I'm actually working with that company. By the way, Masad is going to be on the air this week. We'll have him on Thursday for you guys, and uh, we'll be talking about how to legally protect yourself should you ever have to actually use your weapon, whether it's at home during a break-in or in concealed carry, because it's not always like the movies. It's not always you're a hero. It's uh, sometimes you're prosecuted for you know defending yourself. We'll talk about how the Castle Doctrine uh, impacts that, when and when it doesn't apply, and how to have a preparedness kit ready for if you or a member of your family has to use deadly force. That's the kind of experts they have at Backwoods Home. I don't even hear anybody else talking about something like that. So check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you want to learn how to make knives and you've never done it before, there's no easier entry than going and getting a kit and maybe a DVD and or a book at KnifeKits.com, and you can start making knives yourself right away. If you've been doing it a while and you want to kind of take things up a notch and start forging your own blades, buying exotic materials and things like that, you can also go to KnifeKits.com. You want to start making kydex sheets either for your knives or for your guns or for just about anything else, they have kits to do that as well. Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. Remember, both KnifeKits and 
Uh, Backwoods Home Magazine do offer discount programs for members of the support brigade. So if you're going to order from either one of them, go into the MSB and check and see if what you're ordering has a discount or an incentive behind it as well so that you get the benefit of being a member of the support brigade, which is a good segue. If you want more benefits like that, you want discounts to tons of really cool things, the gear shop, PSP Mint, JM Bullion, um, you know, uh, a free discount membership to Safe Castle, free uh, premium membership with uh, Western Botanicals, 10% off of uh, Victory Seed Orders, uh, 10% off of Terroir Seed Seed Orders, free shipping from uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds, and it just goes on over 40 different places that you get discounts from. Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode when you do. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. If you email me before, not after you join, with service discount in the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. I'll also extend that discount to, prior, uh, to, uh, to first responders like paramedics. Real quick today, I want to remind you again about 13skills.com. If you haven't tried it, get on over there, get signed up, set some goals, set some, some agendas uh, this year to improve your skills. You can do it. I saw a video yesterday on YouTube. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I was watching one of my own videos to see how it came out, the latest one I did on the garden. And I saw a video that said, is Jack Spierko smoking crack? And I thought, oh, well, it's a hater, but I'll watch it anyway. It was a guy who's actually pretty friendly to us and likes to listen to the show, but he thinks I'm crazy uh, that you would have the time to, to add 13 skills to uh, to your repertoire in 2013. I don't think it's that hard, especially if you would have started in January, but it's March. Um, it's about 1.3 a month right now, and some of the stuff, guys, think about how you can build it into your daily activities. If you're already gardening, that doesn't mean that you know gardening and permaculture can't be a skill set, and that this year you're going to learn how to do hugel beds, or this year you're going to go you know, and make, make the leap from doing square foot gardening to doing some perma permanent plantings and things like that. Set your goals at levels you're comfortable with and knock them out, and knock them out over the year. Don't try to knock them out one at a time. Uh, set multiple goals within each skill set, and you'll be surprised at what you can do by the end of the year. And no, I don't think I'm smoking crack. I've never smoked crack in my life. And I'm certainly not smoking crack to think that you could either add or vastly improve 13 skills in 2013. Please join our community there. Please get involved with walkingtofreedom.com. Uh, I uh, will go in as soon as this episode is published and make sure that all the pending members are approved at the forum. There's over 500 members at walkingtofreedom.com right now, but less than 300 total have voted in the disapproval voting on the naughty list. Please, if you're a member, get in there and vote. We need you to vote. Uh, we want this to be as democratic as a process as possible, and the more participation we have, the better. Uh, remember, walkingtofreedom.com is an initiative to get people in the most oppressive states to choose a new place to live and move to a state that best fits what they're looking for in their life. To help people realize that while moving can seem hard, and it can be, and it's not for everybody, 
For some, at least, it's a hell of a lot easier to rent a truck and make some new friends than it is to continue to live in an oppressed society. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Again, uh, Marjorie Wallcraft's about to be on, and uh, I'm really excited, man. She's one of my favorite people in the world, period. Um, I, I just love talking to her. I love having her on. I probably need to figure out how to get her on more often just to talk about the things that she does on a daily basis because it's simple and fascinating at the same time. But there's nothing simple about the process she had to go through with the U.S. State Department to visit the island of Cuba and see what was going on down there. But she's back with an after-action review, a lot of insight. And with that, hey, Marjorie, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, I've been up to some amazing stuff, Jack. <laughs> this is a good one. Yeah, before we get into uh, your your Cuba trip, which is what we had you to talk, uh, to have you on there to talk about today, I got to give you kind of the congratulations from someone just on your site. So I go over to your site and I hear this news, uh, little news broadcast thing where they did a feature on you, and that's cool to get on the news. But I noticed this one little line and then the story, and, it, and you were saying that there's been over two hundred and fifty thousand copies of your DVD set sold, and they're in over 30 countries. And I think back to like four years ago when this little gal sent me an email, I got a DVD I want to sell. And that is pretty freaking phenomenal. Well, now, Jack, I've got to tell you, it's 250000 being used. They haven't all been sold. If the total mm. truth is told, most of those were downloaded illegally from torrent sites. <laughs> <laughs> so the, and actually, there's probably more like a half a million of them. We just, I just don't know. But the last time they had counters on torrent sites, that's how many there were. And you know, I mean, part of the thing is to get the information out there. So sure. you know, for two, two or three hours, I was totally livid, and I could have killed somebody. But you know, once <laughs> I got over that, um, and you know, people who purchase it really do support the research we do, and there's a lot of people that really do that. So I'm, you know, I'm appreciative for what we're doing, but. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you what's worse than, than, than like a couple hundred thousand people stealing your content on torrents. Nobody's stealing your content on torrents. That means nobody gives a damn what you're doing. That's true. It's a compliment. When I, like I said, once I got over it. Yeah. You know what? I've been doing a lot more television. I was on Good Morning Texas a little while ago and some San Antonio Living. And uh, I think the Doomsday Prepper show, where I'm on the final season, which is coming up next Tuesday on the 19th. So God knows what they're going to turn me into. I mean, those people. Uh, you know what? I hate those people. I really do. If they, if they do you wrong, I'm gonna, I know the producer. I'm going to go kick his ass for you. Um, well, I, I, seriously, I, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's good. I came in there as an expert teaching a family some skills, and this was, they didn't have a bunker. These people, they're, they're at some, Kevin Barber with Mainstream Preppers, and his prep is he's moving to Costa Rica. <laughs> okay. So I think this is going to be a pretty clean episode, but you know, those guys really have a talent for distorting things. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the meat of this uh, this episode here. Um, you deci you decided you want to go to oh, go ahead. Well, let me give you some background on Cuba. Um, okay. And the way I went was the Organic Consumers Association, which is a fabulous group. Uh, Ronnie Cummings, they're organizing the Millions Against Monsanto project, where they they have a huge list and they they're always putting out information about how awful Monsanto is, which is pretty easy to do because they. <laughs> They really have moved into the dark side. I mean, Darth Vader is running Monsanto. 
But um, they they organized this trip, and you had to be, you know, the State Department has all these hoops for you to jump through, for you to get to. You don't just get to go to Cuba, although you know, if anybody really wanted to, you can. But they organized a, a group. There were 26 of us, organic farmers, uh, organic food activists, and, you know, uh, researchers in, in growing food. So you had to be a full-time professional. And we went there, and we they had this whole 10-day thing structured, visiting farms and backyard gardens and co-ops and, you know, farmers' markets and state, uh, you know, grocery stores and then private grocery stores and different, you know, restaurants and just looking at the whole food system of Cuba. And let me, if I jump back just a second, the story of Cuba is this. In 1990... The Soviet Union collapsed, right? Yeah. Big deal, right? Who cares? Well, Cuba cared deeply because that was where they were getting like 70% of their fuel. That's yeah. where they were getting all their chemicals. for. They had embraced industrial agriculture more than any other South American country. So they were utterly dependent on all those chemicals. They were utterly dependent on tractors and tractor parts. And they were growing sugar, which was their main export crop, they had totally sacrificed their local agriculture, and they were also dependent on imports of food. So when the Soviet Union collapses, all of a sudden, like, you know, Cuba and a whole bunch of other countries no longer have those imports. And I would say Cuba took it the worst. I, I was recently talking about this, and I said, if you wanted to find the most pissed-off man in the world by nineteen mid-1991, it was Fidel Castro, because yeah. he did everything he was asked to do, and they did nothing when 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 it fell apart. It just all went away, 100%. The U.S. even tightened its embargo even further in 1992 and just made things worse. And then their their main export, which was sugar, the price of sugar has been plummeting on the world markets just because of, um, you know, the high fructose corn syrup and artificial sweeteners and all kinds of stuff. So they were, they were looking, and I feel the scenario that they looked at is going to be very similar to what happens in the U.S. if we undergo, or rather I should say when we undergo economic but They rule in the world is going to help the United States. <laughs> Well, we have a problem that's too big to help. I mean, if if, if the U.S. needs a bailout, it, who's going to do it? There's, you know, they say too big to fail. There's too big to bail, and I think that you, you know, when you look at the U.S., we're too big to bail. And there's a lot of people, frankly, that if we go over that edge, right? More, I'm more with you. When we go over that edge, you're going to be like, good riddance, man. We, you know, we don't want to help you. Yeah, and and we import. 60% of our fuel, the dollar collapses, we're not going to be able to afford to buy that. We're utterly dependent on, you know, uh, modern agriculture, which is not sustainable. So there's a lot of parallels, except for that we have 320 million and they only had 11 million, and they have four seasons of growing and, uh, you know, a lot more abundant natural resources. <laughs> Well, absolutely. I mean, the, you could establish a lot of perennials in Cuba that you can't establish in 99% of the United States. Yeah. So they had, and they also weren't that far away from their agrarian roots, whereas the United States, we've we've been on this road a lot longer. So it was just a fascinating trip. And one thing that was just amazing was. Uh, you know, their government, it's much small, it's an island nation, and it's a much smaller government. I'm not going to get into, I don't think Castro was a particularly good leader, and I think any time you're a leader of a country, you're going to be doing things to shut people up and kick people out, and that's a part of being a leader. And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say he ran his country the 
perfectly. Uh, but the government, much more than in the United States, is supportive of sustainable food, especially after that crisis. So there, there's, you know, they they were the ones that initiated. Okay, we're going to take the college students and put them out in the field and put them to work, and they initiated all these co-ops and and things for to help people grow food. And even today, they're, you know, they're, that's their that's their main push. Although I did meet with some people that knew people from the Ministry of Agriculture, and they said, you know, if they could get their hands on chemicals and tractor parts, you know, they they would definitely be doing that. <laughs> it was like the reason that, that when I watched, we were talking about a documentary called The Power of Community, and you were saying it was accurate but a little bit overly optimistic. And I think what you're hitting on there is the reason they did this isn't because they thought it was a great idea. It was because they had no other choice. That's right. And that's the other thing that we keep coming back to is they just didn't have any other choice. What do you do? You have 11 million people to feed and all your imports are, are no longer happening. Well, the mainstay of what they went back to has been the mainstay of what humans have always gone back to under times of duress. And that's backyard food plots, using vacant lots, you know, small food plots that are intensively cultivated by individuals or families. That's, that's the mainstay that humanity has always uh, gone back to and that's what they went back to and you and you have to go to organic because that's that's how you do it when you have nothing (laughs) you wanted to talk about some of the conversion they did there and i don't know maybe we have a bigger problem here um than they did there when this need arises and here's my concern and i'd like to hear you address this and specifically from the angle of what you saw in cuba my big concern with much of U.S. agricultural land, and even as bad as it is, if you fix it, it, it's the best in the world, the Midwest, throughout the center of the United States, East Coast, the whole place. It's just we should have the most abundant food production in the world, and it shouldn't all be four grains, but it is. On these grains, we have now been drenching the ground, 2,4-D, glyphosate, atrazine, all of this crap, and they keep coming up with new crap as the weeds become resistant to it. To be able to do this, we've genetically modified the food. We won't go down that rat hole because you and I both know it sucks and we shouldn't do that. The caveat, though, is that food's been modified to grow with the exposure to those chemicals. So what happens when you try to take non-GMO seed and put it into a field that's been drenched for over a decade in chemicals, and that seed has not been seen? How long is it going to take to convert that land to where we can grow stuff on it again? Yeah, and I the, the Cubans had that same issue, and they found that it took at least three years to work with the, like the sugarcane fields and those other larger crops. Uh, on the on the larger acreages that they were working with, I think it's going to actually be much longer in mm-hmm. sort of remediate it because we don't have the rainfall and we don't have the growth rates uh, and we don't have the same the same cycles of nutrients and water that they do there. It's much faster. Of a well, they have a very fast decay cycle. Right. And you know, also the groundwater, I think in, like the groundwater throughout the entire state of Iowa is now toxic for human and animal consumption just because of the nitrates and everything else that's in it. So also, you know, that land is very fertile, but how low is the, is it the Aguilalan? I always have a hard time pronouncing that aquifer, you know, and how, how long, I mean, there's always projection of that thing running dry, which means that entire area would become a desert. 
So in Antarctica. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the problem with that is, like, I think, like, some people are a little bit alarmist. But run dry actually makes it uh, to where people go, ah, because there's a shit ton of water in there. What people don't get is there's so many communities that that thing's like a giant underground lake. And that community is sitting over what would be, if it was a lake, a cove, right? A huge cove, bigger than most lakes. Those coves are drying up around the edges. So what you're seeing is these towns on the peripheral of the of the aquifer just slowly dying as as it retreats back. And there could be plenty of water in the middle of it for a long time, but you're talking about tons of places just dying off with no irrigation water at all as it as it dwindles rather than dries up. And that's that's some people just don't get. The the other thing is just the scale of it. Uh, you know, and those there may still be lots of areas that would be viable if we started to try and turn that around now. But you know, they're thousands, hundreds of miles away from large population centers. And I, I was talking to a conventional uh, farmer about a year or two ago and asking them, you know, what was their opinion of switching over from conventional to organic? And they said, you know. In, in the farmer's mind, that was almost impossible because the whole systems were set up for, you know, one big tractor to continually work this thousands of acres. And then when you're talking about doing that with organic, you're talking about human scale, and there's this massive concern for labor and feeding the labor and the logistics of labor in addition to working with the land. So it's it's hugely complex, and I think... You know, Cuba had a lot of advantages in that they are a lot smaller, and it could still be managed uh, reasonably well. Because well, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it was good for Cuba in that if a person from the agricultural department goes and gets 15 kids from a college classroom and says, school's canceled today, pick up a shovel, get out here and work, they're going to do it. Where that's not going to happen in this country until people get really, really hungry. Well, that's another thing that you got to look at the history of Cuba. And Cuba, for for a long time, was really a, a slave nation. They they were they were sugarcane plantations, and then they moved into socialism. And so they have a population that has a very different viewpoint than an American population. The other, you know, in the during the crisis, before the crisis, everybody, and even now, I got to see every family has issued a ration book. And in Cuba, you're guaranteed pretty much some basic staples of food, education, health care, and housing. Uh, so these people are used to that. Yes, they're used to being told, go get a shovel and go out to the wood, you know, go out to the fields if that needs to be, whereas that's, that's not, clearly not going to happen in the United States. <laughs> not without, you know, some FEMA camp supervision or something. Yeah, because everybody's going to want to know why their iPhone doesn't work. The heck with this growing food. I yeah. And I look at the comparison, and I, I think that, like, there's a lot of the land in the United States. The only way we're going to fix it is with, with animals. We're going to have to turn it into grazing land and start doing some mob grazing, a la Alan Savory, Greg Judy, um, where Cuba had the ability to go more into a, a true um, – uh, let's say a vegetative uh, maneuver and, and, and less on the meat side. I think that as bad as people say, you know, animals are and overgrazing is a problem. When you look at the work that, that people like I've just mentioned have done, um, I think that's how you fix that land. Because one thing we can grow in a field that's been soaked with atrazine is grass. We can still grow grass there. 
And glass turns into fat and protein, which, um, yeah. yeah and then the animals start to actually rec- reclimate the land, and then you can put smaller vegetative holdings within large paddock ships. I think that's the only way, and I think there's a ton of resistance to that idea here. We want our cows and CAFOs eating corn, and we want our corn subsidies for Kansas and Nebraska, and that's how we want to do things. And I think it's going to take a break in the system to change it. It, it clearly is, because things are so entrenched. Unfortunately, my, from my perspective, is how bad is that break in the system going to be? Um, you know, that's 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 where the real heartbreak comes from. Going back to animals, one thing that I was just uh, amazed and delighted with was, you know, one of the first things they started doing was using oxen and horse. They, they fortunately had some old guys they managed to drag out of retirement and and uh, you know say, hey, how you do how it worked, right? He's like, this is how it works, right? Because nobody even knows how it works anymore. No, and they's like, you know, what do we do with these animals, you know? And, and they, Cuba, prior to that, had prided itself on having a milk cow that produced, I don't know how many, like a dozen gallons a day or something. But it was totally pumped up on corn and whatever else they could. And then, of course, that cow, you know, isn't even going to be able to produce anything and probably couldn't even live on grass. But they did. They switched over to oxen and to horse, and, and now they they really have fully embraced that. And even though they're getting some fuel and some tractor parts and they're you know they're somewhat into recovery they still really embrace using the oxen and the and the horse and and the reason and one is because they're mostly dealing with small plots you know you're dealing with a couple of acres to 20 or 30 acres not huge areas but the oxen can um, they can work in you know when you got clay soil you are not going in there with a tractor during wet seasons but the oxen can uh, and, you know, I was talking to this, there's a, a permaculture activist in Havana who has this whole cool thing going on with this neighborhood, and she said to me, she said, you know, you really got to rethink wealth. She said, uh, am I not wealthy if I have an ox who only needs grass and water and to be caressed? Yeah. That was blown away. You know, like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and then it works for me, right? That's That's what it needs in order to perform work for me. It needs to be pet. It needs grass that grows. It actually makes the grass grow for itself, you know, and, and, and it produces manure that's fertility. Yeah, so they, they, had a, they had a tremendous amount, you know, I mean, all the classics that you'd expect to see with companion planting, you know, lots of chives to repel insects and a lot of the mint family and the flowers, you know, the marigolds and calendula, all the different ones for the insects and uh, interplanting. Uh, uh, diversities of food forests, um, a lot of integration of animals, and definitely rabbitry is going with worm stuff. So a lot of the classic, classic things you would ex- expect to see, but they were doing it because that is what works, and that's how you actually get production. Uh, I imagine the chicken is pretty popular there now. I mean, you know, it's always been a big part of, of you know, Cuban cuisine, but I'm, I'm sure that now they, they have to rely more on self-production. That's one of their go-to uh, things for eggs, meat, and all the, 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 the characteristics and behaviors that chickens use if properly channeled on a land. Yeah, you know, actually, I was very surprised. I thought they would utilize chickens a lot more. And uh, on their monthly ration card, they were currently getting 10 eggs per month per person. And I, I was surprised it was so low and that I was surprised that there wasn't more backyard chickens in the city itself. And I was asking about that, and they said, well, you know, look at these houses, Marjorie. They're 
they're all jammed in. I mean, we're talking a really tight urban environment, and there's really not a lot of rooms for chickens. And I was thinking, well, you know, out in the countryside, they do raise them larger, but oddly enough, they're feeding them grain. I said, hey, you guys, you're a tropical climate. You should be able to raise insects year-round and feed these chickens insects and have a whole sustainable operation. And you know, like all of us, their systems aren't completely perfect. Yeah. It wasn't like, like when this fell apart, like Fidel wrote a letter to the, you know, World Organic Consortium and had the the foremost experts. And I think some people have that in their head that like, that's what they did. They went to like a per- perfect organic model where they just basically, instead what they really did was they kind of got everybody together that sort of knew the old ways to do things and they just used what they had and they ended up organic because that's how you're going to end up if you don't have anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfect or well organized. You know, as much as a government can help out on that scale, it it seems that they did. But, you know, for the large part, there were periods of time when people were really, really, really hungry. And uh, I did some interviews with Cubans. I'm going to get up on YouTube. But, uh, you know, this one gentleman in particular, Alberto, I was talking to him and he had a couple of daughters, you know, small children, and, you know, the pain, the pain in this man's conversation of having two small girls and not being able to feed them and there not being any food, you know, and so people were, they were taking things like grapefruit rinds and trying to fry them up and, you know, I mean, everywhere they were, they were, they were during the special period, the height of the the, the trouble, they were doing whatever they could for edibility. Uh, People were telling me that, you know, even in these small confined quarters back then, they were raising livestock in their house, and they were pretty embarrassed about it, but they were saying, I had a pig and I kept in the bathroom. (laughs) 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 You know, but they, what also shocked me was during the height of the, of the crisis, 80% of their food supply was grown locally and pretty much everybody Anywhere that you could grow food, it was happening. You know, patios, windowsills, rooftops, backyards, you know, farms. Things have gotten a lot better now. The government is back to giving more and more rations. Uh, and I was actually saddened and disappointed to find out that their locally grown food supply now is only about half, and it's dropped. And um, I, as we were going about Havana, you know, I mean, you could see a lot going on, but I also expected to see a lot more. Yeah. It wasn't happening. And, and the small farmers we talked to were also disappointed. They said, you know, growing food is everybody's responsibility is what they were saying. And they were disappointed that more people, you know, it had there had been a lot at that when the crisis was there. And then as soon as the crisis passed, they, they dropped it and let it go. You know, I've always wondered how people seem to forget so quick when it comes to the the food lesson because, one, it's with you every day. If your belly's empty, you know it. And, two, I have personally always found farming and gardening and ranching to, while being hard work, some of the most fulfilling things you can do as a human being. And because of that, you would think that people would gravitate toward it at least a little bit. I mean, you know, gardening is a multi-billion dollar industry, and I don't think it's just because people want healthy food or are worried about security. I think that's driving kind of a resurgence in it, but I think there's always been this huge market, and I think it's because we have an affinity for agrarian-style things, that we know that we're actually behaving like true human beings when we do these things. 
It, it is it, so it's satisfying. I'm totally with you on that, Jack. It's, you know, my, my, I've gotten a lot more clarity about my mission, and, and the vision that I have is homegrown food on every table. And I'm also I'm looking for how do we communicate that? How do we make growing food more, more sexy and more powerful or more interesting or more intriguing? You know, how do we really communicate what it's all about? And maybe it's not those, you know, but for me, Man, my hour or two that I spend out there in the garden or working with a livestock, you you aren't you aren't taking that away from me for anything. I just love it. You know that's that's where I'm I'm complete and whole and restored from all the other craziness that's going on. So yes. Well, what amazes me is I'll have like my new place I have here, just a little three acre place, and I am you know rapidly changing everything about it. The person that was here before me was a gardener, but really like did and did not know what they were doing at the same time. You look at some things and go, yeah, I see why you did. Why'd you do that? Um, but I have, you know, friends and family coming out looking at the place and a lot of them say, man, I wish I could do this. And I'm like, well, you know, one, one person, you live in like a $350,000 house um, where I live is still close enough to work anywhere in the, the Fort Worth side of the Metroplex anyway. And I paid 200 for my place. So I don't even understand why you're, why you're like, I wish I could, because you could do it tomorrow morning if you wanted to. And I think there's like, I think people have this, this like resistance, like everything different must be hard. I, I guess that's what it really comes down to. Huh? Yeah. I, I think the more and more, you know, as you know, when I first started getting into this, I was mostly focused on the survival and preparedness market because, you know, those are the people that really get that they want to grow food. <laughs> They're super yeah. motivated. And I've always wanted to do more with health and fitness. And uh, it just, you know, just people, it just wasn't there yet. But I'm seeing more and more people now that, and I think that's another great group of people to approach with this, to get more people growing food. Because, you know, first of all, they're def they're very, very health conscious, and they're very clear about the commercial food supply is basically toxic, and they're not afraid of physical work. I mean, they're out there in machines and in the gym. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not? Yeah. I'm out in the garden doing squats. Let's do it. I say, why, are, why are you behaving like a gerbil? You know, you're on a, it's like being in a wheel, some of these machines. And I get, okay, you've got a busy lifestyle. They hit the gym for 30 minutes on the way home or on the way to work, and they stay in. I get that. I get why they work it in that way. But, you know, when I used to still have a normal job and I drove 50 miles every day in each direction, when I got home, I was ready to, you know, go commit a mass shooting or something. I was freaking ready to snap a gasket. And I'd go out in the garden for, for 30 or 40 minutes, and I was a human being again. You know, I could speak yeah. to my wife without snapping a gasket because she said hello. And, and yeah. I, I think that that, that, that's, that physical activity has become a release for those folks. You can get the same workout. Uh, I had a guy recently say, uh, on the Zello channel saying he wanted a way to get more physically fit and, and, and you know, do things outdoors. I'm like, bring your butt over here while I'm digging these trenches in this rock. I, I'll put you to work, and you'll get plenty of exercise. The, the deep connection, and, you know, for me, you know, looking at the food growing and knowing that I've got deeply nutritious food and that I, I have the skills to continue that forever, you know, or, or a tree, you know, a pear tree or a plum tree, and, and, and it's producing fruit and, or livestock and the engagement that you have with livestock and knowing, you know, the, the organ meat of that is probably the most nutrient-dense food you're ever going to get. Uh, it, just the whole 
circle of it and the whole cycle of it. So that's yes, I'm on this mission to like how do we how do we get that out there into the general meme of the population and how 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 do we communicate that? And I love I love doing shows with you because we've got this whole resonance on this. Well, let's go deeper into that a bit later in the show because I think we could have a great discussion there. I want to stick with Cuba a bit because well, you spent a lot of time and effort and money to be able to go there, so. One of the big questions that people have here, right, is when this happens, is everybody going to start shooting each other? You know, and, and what what kind of a violence level, if any, was there in Cuba? And how do you, you know, black market stuff, how does that compare to what you would think would happen in America? Yes, well, there there definitely are some differences between the two. And the first is, is, you know, guns were not that commonly available and still aren't that commonly available in Cuba. So it's not like everybody had access to them, for one. And the other is, so we're talking about a socialist country where even though you own your own home, you can never sell it. So you might have your apartment in town or where your family has been living there for probably a couple of generations, and everybody in the street and the entire neighborhood has been there for a couple of generations. So you deeply are deeply, deeply, deeply connected to these people at a level of communities that Americans can't even really fathom because we move every five years. So the level of community and connection that the average Cuban has is, is is much, much higher than anything that we experience here in the United States. And I believe that was a huge contributing factor. Now, I've been looking into and trying to get any kind of information. There were certainly people who committed suicide. There were certainly a lot of cases of mental illness. In fact, Alberto um, talks about that. He actually ended up going to a mental hospital. There were certainly people and uh, that died of malnutrition, basically. There just wasn't going on. And, and the doctors talk about one of the first things they started to see was children uh, showing up as malnourished. So, they're, they're, you know, this was really a very, very, very hard time. There's not a lot of numbers on that. But the violence, and, and there were black markets. And certainly, if you had a relative in Miami who could send you a few dollars every now and then, you were infinitely better off than a Cuban who had nothing so uh, that almost became, you know, they basically, just as the power community had talked about, the whole social structure turned upside down. Uh, so a gardener or a farmer was suddenly the person to know, suddenly was the person on the top of the social echelon. The doctors and the lawyers pretty much down on the bottom. And even today, I was very fascinated. The government had a very strong program for encouraging people back to the land and to farming as they they totally get it about having sustainable local food. And even today, a young person going into farming or you know, working at one of the co-ops growing food, starting out can make three to four times what a lawyer or a doctor can make. And on some of the cooperatives, they're allowing some private sales. So after they give their basic quota to the state, they can sell whatever else they produce. And in some of those, they're making 10 to 20 times what a doctor or a lawyer can make. Uh, and interestingly enough, they're they're having some young people that are interested, but there's just not a flood. There's not a flood of it, and um, part of it ha- has to do with, I think, part of. I, I was looking at two reasons why that might be, and one is Cuba had really emphasized education. They really focused on training uh, and and education and higher education being better. And a lot of times, when you've got a lot of higher education, then the thought of 
working with the soil and manual labor is, uh, I think that there was a whole psychological thing that's going on in the yeah. Anybody could do that. Why should why should I take my degreed self out in the field and use a shovel or a hoe? Because any person off the street could do that. I got an education for a reason. Is the attitude I guess right? And I'm therefore better. And above that, it's surprisingly, you and I know. Going your own is an unbelievably complex and a skillful job. Well, and you can make it as you can make it as simple or as educationally challenging as you want to. If you want if you want a complex science, look into soil science. And there's a million questions that we have without any answers yet, or there's 20 different answers to the same question, and they can't all be right, and nobody's really proven, and, and, and you're not going to get an answer to that in a laboratory. You're going to get an answer to that through interaction and observation. And, you know, I mean, that just, well, gee, that's a permaculture principle. Wow, it's amazing how it always leads back to the same place. Yeah, so, so I think the reluctance to go into that is, is partly due to the, the, the whole, you know, higher education perception of that being a more quality life. And the, I think the second thing is, is you know, quite frankly, they, they are a socialist country. And there is an inherent lack of initiative in the population. You know, there certainly are a lot of people who are, who are doing things and accomplishing things. But, you know, well, you know, America is actually not that different. What do we have, 46 million people on food stamps now? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's when you're completely taken care of like that, there's, and I know I was talking to some of the Cubans, and they were like, well, you know, I said, why don't you think, why aren't you going into, you know, farming? If anybody wants to go into farming or construction can have a job anytime they want and a very high-paying job. I mean, why aren't more of you doing that? And they're like, well, you know, we're thinking that that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, and I have, I, you know, as long as the, the, the handout is sufficient for relative comfort, the motivation goes away. Gee, so I mean, that, and that's that's kind of always the failed promise of socialism, right there. That if you if you give somebody everything that they you know quote unquote need and a little bit of what makes them comfortable, you de incentivize them to work unless they're just a person that has that anyway. And there are some people like that, but inherent human nature is eh, especially if you've lived with it for four or five generations. Yes, yes, yeah, and that's yeah. their history going on back. It's really, it's really based on a on a slave type culture, which, you know, that that is what it is. And in some ways, it made the people more docile. They certainly had a higher level of community and connectivity. You know, there's pros and cons to everything. Personally, I I see America. It, certainly in the larger cities that there, the, the violence, there won't be any comparison at all. The, the United States, we have so many weapons, we have so much pent up, you know, how many millions of gunshot scenes have you seen on television, you know? <laughs> and we have yeah. so much pent up road rage. I, I think things are going to be a boiling, violent mess if if, if we had a sudden collapse. In, in I think it's going to be pockets of one and pockets of another. I think that there's a lot of rural communities where uh, there'll be guns and, and they'll be used, but they'll be used as a community that says, you, you don't come try it here. I think some of the inner cities, there'll be a lot of scores settled overnight as soon as the law enforcement's not there. Um, one of the things you kind of hit on that's really important and probably not really understood in the dynamic of how Cuba didn't completely melt down into violence is that because they lived in the same place so long, not only do you have this intimate connection, 
uh, with your, your surrounding neighbors, but you've learned how to live with people you don't like. You, you don't have a choice. You don't get, like you said, you don't get to move. You don't get to sell your place. You're going to deal with people you don't like. And therefore, you've learned the dynamics of, I don't have to like you. You don't have to like me, and we can still get along. Where in this country, if you don't like somebody, you punch them in the face. You call, you know, code enforcement to get rid of their chicken or whatever. There's a million solutions that we have that they never did. And when those solutions go away, the common denominator of violence tends to raise its head. That and, and, you know, just hunger or, you know, this is a tropical country. It's it's hot and especially hot and humid. And when you don't have soap and you, you can't wash your body and you can't wash your clothes and people are still trying to maintain some semblance of normality and going to work and, you know, you're in these horrible, horrid conditions, you know, for some people, even you know, living up up some flights of stairs and not having an elevator or the what usual way, or people who had cars and the cars, you know, now they're switching over to bicycle or walking. You know, this whole abrupt change in their lifestyle that they, you know, that this is this causes a lot of friction, and they they handled it a, a lot better, I think, uh, than than what will happen in the U.S. here. And, and I agree with you. I think that the rural areas, there'll be pockets of all kinds of different things, and it, everybody's going to have their own experience. But I have a hard time. I was talking to a producer uh, in New York. You know, I'm doing more of this television stuff, and she lives in Manhattan. And she was going, well, I'm going to be all right, don't you think? Could you could you maybe even do a program with us on bug-out bags and stuff? And I'm, <laughs> she's really just wanting me to make her feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I don't have a lot of kind words for where I what I expect to happen in an area where there's so many haves and so many have-nots in the same place. Um, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's a perfect time for the rise of class warfare. And we have a problem in this country that Cuba never had and never will have unless the poles shift or something. Um, heat is a problem, but heat, you can deal with heat by taking some clothes off, going in the water. You know, Generally, unless you're stupid about heat, it doesn't kill you. It can if you dehydrate and you know things like that. But if you go take a rest under a tree and, and drink a lot of water, you, you, know, you don't die from heat, at least not Cuba's heat. In this country, we have 60% of it or more where it gets cold enough to kill you every year. And if you live in a place with a fireplace or a stove and lots of wood around, you can deal with that pretty easy. But in our high-density cities where everybody's dependent on natural gas and electricity uh, for heat, you got a big problem if those systems fail in the wintertime. That is Water, you know, they get a lot of rainfall. Yeah. It, it, it comes sometimes too much at once, and then they have a dry season also. But on the whole, you can definitely work with it, you know, with rainwater catchment or earthworks or different ways to creatively deal with it. But they also have water. They have an abundance of natural resources that that we just simply don't have. So you're at a- And they have an ocean on all four sides because they're an island and they're not that big. So there's a resource there with oceans. We have a lot of ports and oceans around us, but we have an awful lot of the country very, very dis- disconnected from that as well. Right. So they've got fishing and they've got, and they've got other food sources available naturally. So they really are, they were really positioned in a lot of ways to handle that much, much better, and, and yet still, you know, talking to the people that live through that, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Uh, so I don't know, you know, in the United States, it, it, it could be 
it could be very, very difficult. <laughs> We're not looking at some good things here. But on the other side of it, the way I look at it, if we would start now, which I think is a big part of your mission and my mission is to get people thinking this way now, in reality, we actually have a hell of a lot more resources, a hell of a lot more land, a hell of a lot uh, more ability to be self-sufficient and sustainable from uh, agricultural practices, if we would do them right, than Cuba ever will. That's right, because we have so much access to information you know, we can we can learn. You know, permaculture courses are great. There's all kinds of different uh, different techniques. We can draw from almost anything all around the world. We have just so much more accessibility, and and quite frankly, things are still fairly inexpensive here for getting tools or seeds or the things together that you need to get, or getting the experience. There's so many more gardening clubs and so much so much more, uh, you know, available. Yes, you're right. For people who are are actively embracing this. It's it's a rich time and 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 a good time that we can we can do to get this going. And anybody in this country that really works their butt off for for five or ten years with a dream can own a, you know an acre or two of land. In Cuba, if you own an acre or two of land, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that makes you a landowner, farmer, and pretty wealthy. Well, you know, the government basically owns all of the land there. And okay. currently they have programs They're in trying to encourage more people back to the land. And they, they you know, contrary to, to this situation, they have they have land that they will give to you if you'll go work it and make it productive. And that's okay. I think the main criteria is that for six months you always have the thing productive and it's never fallow for more than six months. They also have, you know, education and training programs. I mean, the, the government really learned their lesson about we need to have a sustainable local food supply. They're really doing what they can. Uh, to so they don't give you the land. They allot the land to you, basically. Right. Well, you know, you okay. Really, but, you know, a lot of people think you own land here in the United States, <laughs> and it certainly seems like it, but at the end of the day, you don't really own your land here. You try not paying your taxes for a while, and they'll do it politely at first, but eventually they're going to use a gun and kick you off if you don't. You know, <laughs> if you don't pay up. So. See, I, I still consider it ownership because what I call what I call that is as part of the cost of ownership. Um, yeah. I'm not a fan of property taxes. I think ta- taxing income and property are complete. I mean, as much as I hate sales tax, um, I think when you start taxing property and income, you've gone over into what I consider immorality. But it's the case in most nations, so it's what you're going to have to deal with to, to play ball today. Um, but when you tax property, you're basically taxing something I've paid tons of taxes on to acquire already. And and I, I get your point, but I always try to tell people don't 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 not own land because of that. Because you can either own land and pay taxes, or you can rent land for me and pay my taxes for me. And I'll be happy to lease you land and have you pay my taxes. Because if you think your landlord in a rental situation doesn't, you used to do commercial property, so I'm sure you never you never leased out a property um, without putting a line in the Excel spreadsheet for taxation. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to get hung up on that. But yeah, you know, one one of the things that really really struck me about Cuba is we talk about reduce, reuse, recycle, and uh, the fascinating thing was that they they you know just being in a place where they completely embrace it. And one of the most amazing things, right when you get out of the airport at Havana, after you go through that mass of people that you always have in a developing country airport, and you hit the streets, and the first thing you're going to see, 
1959 was when Castro basically uh, kicked out Batista, and uh, things deteriorated pretty quickly with the United States, and they, like, no longer had any imports, and they used to import all these automobiles, and they basically didn't have any more automobile imports, and they have been too poor to buy a whole lot. They've been buying some. But what you've got on the streets, and I mean like half of the traffic on the streets, are these old cars from the 50s and the 40s and the 30s <laughs> still running on the streets of Cuba. It's unbelievable. I'm not a big car fan buff, but, you know, there were some people in our group that were, oh, my God, there's a 53 Chevy. I'm pretty sure I own that, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's always been the case. that any Any car buff that goes to Cuba is like in heaven. Yeah, and you know, those mechanics are unbelievable. I grew up in North Miami, and I remember my mother had a mechanic, Raul, who was a Cuban, and that guy was a miracle maker, I believe you. But these guys, are, they're incredible. These cars are still running, and they, they joke about it, and they say, you know, you lift the hood on one of these things, they say, well, it's no longer the original engine. They're saying, it's the United Nations under there. They have managed to scab together parts from Japan and Europe and China and bailing wire and duct tape and chewing gum and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, it's but they run. Incredible. But they run. Yeah, they get, you know, they do a good amount. I did see a little bit of horse uh, and carriage type things in Havana, not that much, but certainly out in the countryside there were a lot more horse and carriages and there were more people, um, horse and carts rather, and, and people on horseback uh, and certainly bicycles. And the further out you got, the more you you saw that, but a lot of other things, you know, beer bottles, for example, uh, we went to this one co-op, and there they had this whole table full of beer bottles that they were cleaning, and they were filling it up with um, their tomato sauce and capping it off again. In uh, hmm. you know, um, old Winnebago, they had the windows of the Winnebago, and they had incorporated it into part of a building, and then they were using the windows for that, or, oh, the... <laughs> the national newspaper is called the Grandma, right? It's a, a basically a you know a propaganda type thing, and the Cubans were laughing, and they say, "Oh yeah, yeah, we use that too." And they they were showing us, you know, they crumple it up, and they said, "Yeah, we use this for toilet paper." And they said, "We got the most highly educated behinds in the world." <laughs> 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 you know, they really did seem to. They were definitely uh, much much happier. Uh, there were people on the tour with us that had been in Cuba, like prior to uh, 1959, we'd had people that had been there during the during the 1990s and the crisis and, and, and throughout that time period, and they were saying, you know, people, they, they, there was a very, 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 very sad, very sad period, and people were very sad, and their, their, their skin and their faces, they weren't getting the nutrition, so their skin was gray and flaky and paling, and, uh, you know, their whole demeanor was 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 very much uh very much uh very difficult to live through one of the things so you know we're preppers right we're preparing and the prepper community and so i was always fascinated i did quite a few interviews with people and i said at the end of every interview and i would try not to lead any questions you know let, i wanted to hear genuinely what they had to say and my final question to them was so, you know, there's a lot of Americans who are thinking that the United States is going to undergo a special period. We're going to undergo economic collapse. What advice would you have for Americans who are preparing for this? What would you recommend that they they do? And it astonished me that every single Cuban that I interviewed never said a word about buying anything. They didn't say, 
well, go stock up and make sure you've got a year's worth of food supply. Or, you know, go get some guns and some bullets. Or get a bunch of bandages. Or, you know, get this stuff and stockpile it up. Or, you know, get a bunch of books in a library and know how to do things. It's really funny. Every single one of them, without exception, said, get to know your neighbors and be prepared to share with the people around you. That's pretty amazing. Um, I, I'd say it's it's good advice, and it also you have to you have to though, let's say judge it against or uh, compare it to some some other reality, such as one of the reasons you wouldn't hear go out and buy six months or a year's worth of food is it would never occur to them because they don't have the ability to do it. Well, that's exactly. They're not a consumer oriented culture, and they're not. They're, they just don't. You're right. They don't. And that's. But it just fascinated me that wasn't a part of their. You know, we're so yeah. super oriented in the U.S. And it just struck me, but they they really spoke more and more about community, about taking care of other people, and and you know thinking of things that you could do to lift other people's spirits. Uh, They're also looking at it from the rearview mirror. They've been through it, and I think that when you when you think about going through something, you have one perception of it, and when you actually go through it your perception changes to reality, right? So all we can do, you and I even, and I, ha- I think we have some pretty good hypothesis about where this is gonna, it's going to be worse, where it's going to be better, things like that. That's why you and I both choose to live in more rural areas. Um, but we don't really know. But a person that's been through it knows, at least for them, exactly what it was like. Yeah. Yes, and, you know, I agree, they're a completely different culture, but I, there was one of the things, that, you know, you, what that's, what's that word, smack gob or something like that, or gobsmack, I love that word, you don't get to use that very often, so I was <laughs> gobsmack, <laughs> like, wow, they just, they just didn't even think about buying stuff, and I agree, I'm not saying don't buy stuff, because I've, I'm a big proponent, I think that having a year's supply of food is very wise, and having some weapons and some backup supplies is totally appropriate. You know, that that's actually, you know, a homesteader in the United States 100 or 200 years ago would not have even considered it without having those supplies. And that's a part of basic living. So I'm not saying don't. It just fascinated me that that, that wasn't their, they, they couldn't, that wasn't their lens at all. They couldn't see that at all. And again, it's just not a consumer society. There really wasn't a lot of choice in anything. You know, you go to the, you go to the store, the, the bodega, the state store, and that was it. You know, there's one kind of soap, there's one kind of rice, there's one kind of beans, there's one kind of egg. You know, there's no, there's no choice of anything at all. That's, that's, that's what it was. <laughs> In fact, wow. There just wasn't anything. So, you know, it's an extreme. I have to say, when I go into the grocery store and I need, I hate buying shampoo. You know, we go to the grocery store, we get on that aisle, that aisle is like 30 feet long, and there's five thousand varieties of shampoo. Yeah, yeah, and each 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 brand has seven or eight or a hundred freaking smells and flavors or whatever you want to call them. And, and then the one that I found last time that I liked, I, there's no way I'm going to find it again or even <laughs> here again. I got a solution for you. Once I discovered natural lye soap. One day I was like, you know, if you brush your hair with a bar of soap, it usually it's not good. It comes out kind of sticky and yeah. gross. And, and I was always like, well, why? What's in there? That, like, maybe that doesn't belong on my skin. So I started using live soap. And I'm like, you know, one day I'm just like, I'm going to wash my hair with a bar of soap. I'm not going anywhere. If it comes out like that, I can take another shower. It's no big deal. Hair came out fine. 
I haven't touched a bottle of shampoo in over a year now because I just use natural soap and I use it as for everything. I'll, I'll do that. I've also been looking at other alternatives for, for, for hygiene. But the, the contrast of, you know, we're totally at one end of the spectrum and they're totally at the other. Sure. And, uh, you yeah. know, so it's, it, it, well, they're like the Soviet Union was before the collapse. It was pretty much that's how Russia was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, it's really you know a socialistic communist <laughs> country. They're starting to move toward capitalism, and um, you know, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. They're they're going to have you know right now. There's really no unemployment, no real hunger. You know, everybody has a place to stay, but they're starting to shift more and more into uh, a capitalistic and market. It's you're just on the very edge of it. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to watch as they, as they go along. Uh, but what a what a remarkable place and uh, the, the 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 people there that had gone through it and the the happiness now that you know they're, they're, they've gone through this horrible thing and there's a, almost a sense of joy and and connection and happiness from you know when you you, you see it in cancer survivors they 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 sometimes just seem to have a glow and a smile on their face that's that's almost unreasonable. But it's because they were so close to death, and they were clo- so close to losing everything, and to come back from that, and you know maybe your hair is gone or whatever, but you know you're alive and you're breathing and the sun shining. So there was a, there was a sense of that among among the older Cubans that I interviewed and talked with. As we get toward the end here, could you give people some advice and what you think from your experience, knowing what we have here and what's available here? And seeing what they went through and what they don't have available, what you would be advising people to do right now for themselves? Yes, I would say start learning to grow food. That is the number one thing, and start getting connected with your neighbors and your community. If if, if you're going to be where you are, then you know be there and start developing the neighborhood groups and you know start start thinking of um, you know how how you could grow food together, how you're going to defend yourselves, you know the whole the whole gamut of but I would really say food is so crucial and community is so crucial that, that these are two big aspects. We all love to, 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 to play with the guns, but that's really pretty an easy thing, and so it's pretty simple. The, the other two are, are much more long-lasting and worthwhile. Absolutely. I mean, what are your thoughts on how important it is for people to try. I know some people can't, but people that can to try to get some level of, of animals into their system for both protein production and for fertility. I would say animals are crucial. They are crucial, and even if you're a vegetarian, get some animals because uh, that, you're absolutely right. Fertility is the number one reason. The other is animals are the easiest food source to grow. They really are easier to grow than most other things. So. Um, and they they're, they're more robust than vegetables certainly. So well, they're, they're caloric conversion systems because they take cal- calories you cannot use, and they convert them either with fertility or with to to use as meat into ca- or eggs or milk into calories you can use. Yes, and and diversity diversity is the key. So you don't want to overwhelm yourself with a lot of things at first. But start with what you can and realize that you're not going to just want to have one thing. You're going to want to have a lot. You're going to want to have an annual garden. You're going to want to have some, some orchards and some perennials. You're going to want to have some livestock. You're going to want to go out and do some wild crafting on occasion, some either, you know, herbs or, or fish or, or game. 
you're going to you're going to want to look at at everything around you in the in those regards. Uh, but you know, a lot of people often get overwhelmed looking at like, oh, this is too much. Just start with one or two things and get started. And more than anything, just get started. And it's sure. amazing how just you know some small steps. And then some small steps, and then some small steps, and, and then after a year, you look back and you go, "Wow, you know, I've, I've got a garden, and I've got some chickens, and I'm, you know, got a little fish pond, and you know, that's amazing." So uh, yeah, I think another thing that holds people up is everybody has the dream of the big farm someday, and when people are like, "I want 80 acres," and I'm like, "Well, unless you know how to work a tractor, um, I'm not saying you shouldn't have 80 acres." I'm not saying that you shouldn't have that as a dream. I'm just saying that you, you, what most people would end up doing with most of 80 acres is nothing, right? Because it's a lot. That's a lot of land to manage. If you go walk a couple of five, ten acre properties, you start to get a new appreciation for how how big a piece of land that really is. And when I start looking at building a design for someone with one acre of property. And that's going to be a person that has a full-time job, and they're only going to have so much time. And they're not going to live there 24-7 like, like you or I do. I, I come up against a point at which I go, if I actually take this design any further for this person, they're not going to be able to maintain and manage it. They're not going to be able to work it. Two acres will completely wear you out. <laughs> yeah. Philosophy. Really. I mean, really, you know, a family of four and two acres is a lot of land. And you're absolutely right. Somebody with a full-time job, an acre of land is, is more than they're going to be able to manage. And it really, you know, but but you know, start, you know, get the garden. Start somewhere. My big point there is don't wait to have enough money and all to go out and buy the 80-acre farm or the 800-acre farm. You can find a smaller holding, a half acre to an acre will do a lot for, for a person. Um, and I, I, I try to put it in perspective for people this way. Everybody that's ever been to high school probably had gym class and had to run around a track around a football field. And that track is about a quarter mile track. And that football field is right at an acre. So if you walk around uh, the perimeter of an acre of property, you've gone a quarter of a mile. If you have a three-acre property, it's not completely linear, but you end up with about five-eighths of a mile by walking its perimeter. Um, just that strip around the perimeter is a tremendous amount of property that's the, the edge, the margin, where you can get the greatest productivity, and most people never even use that. That's just where they run their weed eater and edge it, right? And they never understand that the, you can have this incredible amount of productivity just in a quarter-mile strip that's a couple feet wide around a single acre property. And, and I don't think people really understand how big a piece of property is until they start managing it by the square foot. And then all of a sudden you start to realize how much resource you really have. That, that People in general are completely out of touch with a pedestrian lifestyle. You know, you get in your car and you push that accelerator and it's completely distorted people's understanding of space and how far a mile is. So, yes, and absolutely, you really don't need a lot of land. And even if you have a lot of land, you're not going to use it for much. You're going to mostly be focused. Because working something in a small space intensively is just so much more time efficient than having stuff spread out all over the place. I'd also tell people, like, one of my big pieces of advice for people is, I want to grow my own wheat. No, you don't. <laughs> First of all, it's gluten and it's toxic and all, but if you really want wheat, you can go buy a 50-pound bag of wheat for about 20 bucks. You don't want to grow wheat. You want to grow things that are extremely nutrient-dense, 
extremely nutritious and tastes really good. And there's a place for peppers and tomatoes because they're so easy to grow and you can do so much with them. But try to focus on growing things you can't just walk down to the store and buy. You know, if you're going to put all this effort in, grow things at a premium. One of the things I'm going to be bringing onto our property very soon, and I know you work with them too, is geese. And people say, well, you know, it's easier to grow chickens for me. Yeah, but have you seen the price of a goose? Go, go buy a goose at the supermarket and see what the cost is. So grow things that are at a premium if they're relatively easy to do. Don't try to grow oats and wheat. That's, that's, that's farmer stuff. That's not, you know, intensively managed small land parcel stuff. You know, I actually grow the geese and primarily for fertility. They, yeah. You can get so much more fertility out of the geese than you can out of the chickens. So, uh, you know, the fertility, at the end of the day, the fertility is the biggest factor in that productive system. How much, how much compost and how much nutrients can you continually be feeding the plants? The plants are the producers and everything else, including you as a consumer. And so you, whether it's grass or whether it's vegetables, you want to continually be nurturing. And those plants are going to do better the, the more rich, fertile soil and the more nutrients for most plants that we want to grow. The more that you can get them, the better they're going to do. So, yeah, fertility is, is like, it's huge. It, it, people really underestimate how much fertility and how much you need to focus on fertility in order to really have a successful system. So I, used, I remember when I had you on about rabbits. You said if I didn't eat a rabbit in my life and never bred any of them, I'd still have a few of them just for the, just for the pellets. Just for the manure. And then, um, yeah, we're, we're starting to do worm composting with it. And worm compost, oh, my God, that stuff is just so wonderful. We do some work with Dr. Elaine Ingram, the soil diva, the soil microbiology diva. She's analyzed all different kind of composts and compost heaps and everywhere. And com- compost made from worm casting is always the richest and the best. So you know, you've got to have a warm composting system in your, somewhere in your, in your system. So. Well, I think it's a better solution for most people because most people build a, co- a compost pile. And then they go out and they dump their, their kitchen waste on there every day. And they just keep dumping it. And basically what you've done is you've put a cake in the oven, and you've got it up to temperature, and then you put, added more batter to it. And then you, you get it up to temperature, and you add more. And you got this, this cake that's like completely in different stages because composting to be done very efficiently, you want a cubic meter or more material. You want certain ratios of greens and browns, nitrogens and carbons. And you want to get it going and turn it and get it hot and turn it again. And you can push through a cubic meter of compost in 21, 24 days. And you can get it so hot that you can throw a piece of roadkill animal in the middle of that thing and there won't be a tooth left by the time you're done with it. But when you're just adding a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, you never, eventually it'll break down and you'll end up with compost, but you don't get that real high efficiency and it seems like it takes forever. When you use worms, they're perfect for that, right? You just take your stuff and throw it in there every day. That's, that's such a great analogy. Yeah, well, I find for the kitchen scraps, having a worm bin type situation or black soldier fly larva situation, much more efficient use of that. And, and for restoring fertility. And your chickens probably think you're God when you feed them soldier fly lava, too. Oh, larva oh did. my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely come running. They go, chicken, boy, they are like, yeah, mama, we're Protein, baby, protein, yeah. Eggs, oh my God, that golden orange yolk, you know. Oh, you're like, yeah, and you know, the shells that are hard. Yes, you know you're doing the right thing. So, um, the, the big thing is, we could probably have you on for several hours, but I've got to wrap up here. 
everything that you do pretty much is wrapped up in your DVD series. So I, even though I tell people about it every week, let's let you know you are the producer of it. You tell them about it and how they can get it. And folks, please don't download it on a torrent. Uh, Marjorie is a huge supporter of the show. She's been with us almost since the beginning. So if you haven't got her DVD yet, uh, tell, tell folks how they can get it. Well, the website, growyourowngroceries.com, and my mission is homegrown food on every table. And so everything I do focuses on that. We cover a lot of self-reliance, but since food is one of the most difficult skills to acquire, that's the primary thing that I focus on. And we have, you know, um, I'm actually just about to launch a blog where I've been writing all these articles and doing all these videos and everything. I thought, well, you know, I ought to put it in a blog, which will be a central location for this. Yeah, some guy named Spirko told you to do that like four years ago, but yeah, yeah you're getting there. So many things you told me to do, and I'm slowly getting to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm working on it. You were totally right about everything, though, I have to say, really, and all the marketing. But the gist of the video set is this. Our parents and our grandparents, they were basically self-aligned. They knew what to do. They knew what to do when things went wrong. They knew what to plant. And you know what, they, they rarely ever went to the doctor. And so this video series is, is designed to be your guide to help recapture that lost knowledge. So, you know, yes, the plants and the animals might be different because you're up in, you know, Wyoming or something like that. But the principles that it teaches and the common sense it conveys uh, is priceless. And it's extremely valuable for you really being able to get your systems up to speed and running very quickly. And that's what the essence of the video set is. It's, it's two, two DVDs and a CD-ROM, and the CD-ROM has a library of books that support the material in the video. So that's the whole set. It's at growyourowngroceries.com. And, uh, yes, that's my whole passion is you know, homegrown food on every table. For so many reasons, that's where we need to go. Well, uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for, for producing that. When I saw it from the beginning, I've, I always tell people it's one of the best nuts and bolts how-to guides I've ever seen put together. So I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate the fact that it's in a couple, you know, quarter million hands, even if some of them got it, you know, nefariously. Uh, it means people are paying attention to you, and they should be. And I appreciate you being with you, uh, with you today. I appreciate you taking the effort to go to Cuba because I'm sure it wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do. And uh, thank you for being here and telling us about it. Oh, Jack, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm hoping to catch up with you on one of these other expos coming up here pretty soon. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, I'll be at the one in Arlington, of course, since I'm right here. And uh, I'll throw a little announcement out. There's going to be one in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I'm going to be putting out uh, my appearance list this week, and I'll be in Des Moines uh, in June. And then I will be in, I think, either Denver or Colorado Springs. I'm not sure where they're doing it in October. So uh, I'm sure I'll hook up with you at least at the one in Arlington. There you go. There you go. So, folks, if you want to meet Marjorie, come to Arlington. And, uh, well, that's in April? That's, yeah, that's like next month. And uh, we'll be there. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Marjorie Wildcraft, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do 
Nobody up there cares. They're living for today. 